Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Megan Cotter. Megan Cotter is a 2004 graduate of Emory and Henry College and a mass comm major. I had the joy of having her in the classroom and getting to know her. At Emory and Henry, we always challenge students to go out and change the world and make it better. And boy, is Megan Cotter doing that. Welcome to this conversation, Megan Cotter. Thanks for having me. Oh, what a delight. Uh, the Bristol paper had an editorial Thursday, August the 25th, and it was an editorial uh, from Fredericksburg, Virginia, where you live. And the exciting thing in that editorial was it was not just about an issue, the issue of homelessness, but it was about the movers and the shakers in that world. And a great deal of it was about you and the success that you and others are having about homelessness in Fredericksburg, Virginia. So first of all, congratulations. We're so proud of you from Emory. And what is it that you do that has gotten you involved with the issue of homelessness? So I work um, and have for the last um, 15 years for a collaboration of downtown churches um, in Fredericksburg um, that came together out of a need to uh, pool resources and respond more holistically to um, some needs of folks who were literally ending up at the doorsteps of our downtown churches. And so um, Fredericksburg is a it's a it's a it's a city that sits at the center of four larger counties. And while the city itself is um, a um, uh, um, is, is actually 11 square miles. The, um, the, the population, we're actually the second fastest growing part of the state of Virginia being an hour south of DC. So there's a lot of growth and a lot of urban issues, even though the city itself is relatively small. So, so um, churches about 15 years ago were um, having um, folks that were on the street um, come in needing anything from food, clothing, showers, somebody to help them figure out their paperwork. And my organization emerged out of those churches saying, you know, we're all responding individually, but we could really do a lot better if we would work together and try to um, devise some more meaningful solutions. So and the I organization is called MICA Ministries, right? Uh -huh. And it was formed by this coalition of churches? Yes. Yes. But you are now the executive director. So what was the process that got you into a full-time position with yeah. the organization? So, um, so we're actually kind of a unique organization. My governing board, we have, we have a group of the lead pastors of those nine downtown churches. Um, and, um, and they kind of keep us on track with mission and theology and purpose and whatnot. But each of those churches appoints a layperson from their their congregation to be part of the um, the board of directors. So it in on paper it looks like any other nonprofit, but there's this kind of underbelly that really roots us in being a faith based organization doing this work. Um, and the you know the short answer to your question is I grew up in one of those nine churches that formed MICA. Um, and I had I was working at the local newspaper at, at the time and and writing about a lot of key local issues and whatnot, and just really had always, even when I was in Emory and Henry, had a tug and a call to do something 
um, around um, homelessness and poverty and, and you know, how to have a real passion for how the church plays a meaningful role in that work. And um, when um, I was just kind of looking around and trying to do what you do when you're 24 years old and trying to figure out what your next thing is. And I, I kind of tripped into one of the churches at the time was doing a community dinner where a lot of the homeless population was coming and eating and kind of began to share some vision and, and whatnot. And they had already started Micah, but really didn't have any kind of structure or, or effort around it. And so for whatever reason, they, they hired me at 24 years old to come and help them figure out what this thing needed to be. And, and here we are now, 17 years later to, um, uh, doing a whole lot of things. Well, for whatever reason they hired you probably had to do with the fact that you, first of all, had the passion, but you also are a very bright woman and you were always a superstar achiever. And you had originally thought, I want to take that uh, lead that you just dropped about that you had worked in the newspaper. You were trying as a reporter uh, to do good work as a journalist. Yeah. And I believe, didn't you win a pretty significant award for your um, writing? I, I did. Um, I, um, I was at the newspaper about three years after I graduated and, um, I was covering local government. I covered business and, um, I, 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 I got really involved in a, a, a kind of a three-part story about the living wage, which is, you know, should tell you a lot about where kind of my interests <laughs> are and um and uh, you know that you know that may have been a kickstarter for all i know but um but yeah i won a um an award through the virginia press association for for that series on the living wage yeah with my fuzzy brain what i had recalled with it was something about economics i didn't remember that it was about the actual living wage but like yeah that does show where your passion is in reporting on on economics is, oh okay is, uh, was. So, but it seems more real and more tangible to think of it in terms of about a living wage, because in a nutshell, the issue of living wage is what, Megan Cotter? <laughs> well, so like, you know, we all you know, talk about um, minimum wage, but living wage um, really means that people make enough money that they can afford their expenses and still have something left over. Um, and so, the minimum wage is always drastically behind where a living wage is and living wage is dependent on kind of where you live and what it is. It's certainly a lot more here in Fredericksburg than it probably would be down in Bristol or Abingdon or, or whatnot, but it's relative to the cost of living where you are. So this nine church organization forms and you get lured from your full-time work as a journalist to run this organization. And now here it is in 2022 and the newspapers in more than one location in the state, um, the newspapers are talking about the great hope and the great success so far in combating homelessness. Mm -hmm. So how did we get from you as a young woman taking charge of this fledgling organization to you're being touted around the state as having great success. So, um, so much of, um, of what, um, 
I do, um, and, and I, I, I probably should give a shout out to the, what was the public policy and community service program at Emory and Henry. That's also a part of my Emory and Henry story. I think it has a different name now, but I don't know what it is. Um, but, um, the, um, but Steve but, Fisher, let's just say Dr. Steve right. Fisher, <laughs> and then people will know. That's right. And so, um, so much of, um, you know, what I knew how to do when I took this job was listen to the community. And that's not just listening to the, um, listening to the, um, the, the greater community, like agencies and churches and, and whatnot, but listening to the people that we were trying to serve. Um, and, um, and so I spent a good deal of time, probably the first year of what I was doing, just really getting to know people and making sure they knew me in a capacity other than being a reporter. And a lot of those things that I learned, I look back on that time as, as really a, a really special time and kind of what helped me understand who we needed to be as an organization in order to really meet people's needs. Um, and so um, I, a lot of times nowadays, I, I'd say, you know, in, in 17 years, we've come very much from being a basic needs organization that helped people survive on the street to an organization that cares for the whole person. Um, and some of the things that are included in that are um, we have a day center that is a drop-in place for people to get connected. We have, uh, we connect a lot of community resources and give people a place to meet people who are on the street who oftentimes have a hard time accessing services. Um, we have a, a respite house for homeless folks when they come out of the hospital. Um, we do housing stabilization. We do income development. We do, and we um, even have a street church. Um, that really helps with some of the social and spiritual part of caring for people. And so we've really become a village of sorts um, um, in a lot of scattered ways. Um, and, and I think that's a big part of what's now leading us to kind of some of those next things. Well, the big question becomes when you're talking about all this, day cares or day centers, respite houses, all these things, it says dollar signs, dollar signs. Where's the money coming from, from all of this, for oh, all of this? A uh, little bit of everywhere. I mean, we, we do get some state and federal grants, some local grants. I do a lot of grant writing, which certainly my communications background has helped with, with that. Um, and then just traditional fundraising is really the, the, you know, one of the bulk of the pieces of what we, um, of what we we have to do to be able to pay the bills and hire staff and, and, and whatnot. So do the churches commit a certain amount of money regularly? Yeah. So each of our, and, and so there's nine churches that are part of our governing structure. And so, and it may be interesting to people. So it's nine churches, six different denominations, which is like, I, I more and more when I go to other communities that people it's unheard of. <laughs> um, well, exactly. Cause the Methodists can't get along with other Methodists and Baptists can't get along with other right. Baptists and the churches that's are right. splitting and here you've got <laughs> nine different yeah, denominations. It's, it's certainly not easy, but, um, and there are many other churches that partner with us in other ways, but, but that like keeping that core governing church structure of those nine as the center and then many churches help us in lots of different ways. 
Um, but um, where was I going with that? What was your question? <laughs> About where all the money comes from. And I had oh, yeah, sidetracked so, you, but, but yeah, that's okay. So each of them, um, each of them commit a minimum amount um, of, of money. A lot of them give more than that minimum. And then a big part of it too, is that we have a ready base of, of, of people that we have immediate access to that are really this community we've built around this community that we're caring for, um, that we have access to, and that they feel that they are a part of the story that we're forming together. Now, when you're talking about those people who feel like they're part of the story, the church members, churches. So like, I mean, the Catholic church alone has over 15,000 people that are part of their, their parish. And then each of the other churches probably have a, a, you know, a rough membership of, you know, 2000 or so. So we get access to that communication circle that are people who are, are immediately coming to it with a different kind of why than just, I want to get people off the street. They have a fundamental care for the, the the human person, you know, that comes from a biblical place. Well, that would certainly make someone feel good about putting money in the collection plate or donating to this cause when you know that it's helping people right next to you in your own neighborhood, the people who are at the very bottom of the rung. So I can uh, only applaud you for that success and getting all that organized and managing all of that. You talked about listening and you talked about people on the street, surviving the street. You talked about working with the whole person. What is it that you have learned? And give me, you know, like the journalist, you want specific stories. You want a visual. You want to picture the story. What have you learned from people on the street? What have you learned from individuals you have met? Yeah, well, the thesis is that that people don't become homeless when they run out of money. People become homeless when they run out of relationships. Um, And that's a really fundamental understanding that I think makes people stop a minute and think, because if people are homeless because they don't have a job, you're gonna respond a certain way. If people are homeless because they don't have, have, they have mental health issues, you're gonna respond a certain way. But if you understand that people on the street are no different than people who, are at any other place in life. Some of us probably have people with mental health issues in our own families. We have people in our in our friend circles who have addiction, who we know people who've lost jobs. And, and the, the fundamental deciding factor as to whether somebody hits the street or not is that support system and that friend and family unit. Um, and, and that's just I, something I often like to, to root people in as they understand um, you know, who we are and what we do and, and where we're coming from. Um, the other thing that I think is important to recognize is that just because people are on the street does not mean that they don't have assets um, to share. Um, and um, the story that I have been telling a lot recently is, is um, the story of a, a woman who um, was a graduate of the University of Alabama had, um, um, she ran um, four intensive care units at one time in her life, had a marriage that really fell apart and and had some issues and uh, whatnot. And she herself, as a result of some of that, had faced addiction. And she ended up on the street and was, um, was on the street for about five years. But one of those first few nights she was on the street, there was another woman that she ended up 
um, camping with in a, in a tent here in, in town. Um, and that woman herself had been on the street for about 10 years. And that woman who had been on the street took this woman um, um, and said, take your shoes off. And for about an hour that night, they walked in and out of the woods where they were camping. And she was teaching her how to escape the woods in the dark if something happens and you don't have your shoes in the middle of the night and need to get to safety. And I could tell you hundreds of those stories of these little things that I know of this community and how they care for people and how they have become a support system. And I, the, I have to tell you the end of that story for you to truly appreciate how remarkable it is. While that woman spent five years on the street, um, she actually, she got off the street. She, she has been sober now for 10 years. She's actually the head of my housing program now. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, what a success. And, and that's a, and that's a, a rare story in my case or whatever, but it just goes to show like when she was on the street and in that moment, in those early days, we never would have thought that that would have been, been the case. And so, um, you know, it's things like that, that I don't think that a lot of people understand about people on the street, that they often are all each other have, um, which has really informed how we have, have um, decided to, to move forward and look at some of the other things that we want to do. You talked about people. You, first of all, you said people on the street are just like everybody else. And yes, we do know people who have mental health issues, alcoholism, drugs, addiction. They have family members that they live with. They have people who take care of them. What would you say to people who say, well, yes, those people are on the street because they're difficult. You, they have these problems. You can't help them. And yet here you are trying to help them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I probably have a lot to say about that. Uh, you know, people would say to me when I first started doing this work um, um, 15 years ago that um, that that they wanted to make sure I knew I was working with the people who could not be helped was kind of the, the perception. And it's taken 15 years, um, I think, for us to prove people wrong and take some of the hardest to serve off the street, get them in housing, support them, and in some ways make them effective, productive people in our community. And it's been that hard work of really being the support system and, and getting meaningfully involved in their lives, I think that has demonstrated to our community that um, that there's that 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 everybody is worth grace and um, opportunity to um, have second seventieth hundredth chances um, and and you know we all know difficult people and as I said before you know we all have difficult people in our friend circles and our family circles and that doesn't mean that they always become homeless. And the difference is support system. And so I think it has been that diligent, um, relentless belief in the human condition and who people are and who they were created to be that has led us, um, has now gotten, begun to get our, our city and others in our community to start to say, well, hey, 
maybe there is something to this. I mean, we've, the proof is in the pudding <laughs> uh, per se that, that, and I think that's why you now see our local government, which, you know, many years ago would be, you know, really ruthless, frankly, about clearing out campsites and, you know, moving people along and whatnot to, you now have, you know, what you saw in the editorial was you have our local government signing a memorandum of understanding with Micah and some other partners in the community saying, okay, we want to work together to actually come up with alternatives to sleeping on the street and meaningful solutions to care for our community in a different way. Well, Megan, the things that you're talking about, forgive, not just once, but multiple times, seven times 70 Mm -hmm. or whatever. And that, uh, loving people, no matter what their status is, certainly an example of the faith-based community. I would say these are Christian values. Are there churches other than Christian churches as part of your organization? So MICA isn't of itself um, inherently Christian. Um, we have a, have a great appreciation for interfaith um, um, efforts um, um, and there are many, there's a synagogue that participates with some of our meals. There's a, um, um, an Islamic congregation that is involved with us in, in some different ways. And we are highly respectful and encouraging of other faiths coming to the table with us. But one of the things I think that we sometimes forget when we talk about, you know, people of faith coming together is, when I come to the table, I'm going to come as a Christian and I want my Muslim friends to come as, as um, a Muslim and, and my Jewish friends to come as a Jew. And we all, that's, that's the banquet table um, is where we all come with who we are and, and we don't necessarily have to give up pieces of that. And, and those who come alongside us, whatnot, you know, I appreciate when people come and share those different faiths when our community, that's just not our narrative. Megan Cotter, my guest, working with homelessness in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and getting state acclaim in terms of a particular editorial that was even in our local paper here. You said that the proof is in the pudding. Um, So we're going to go from those lofty notions of faith and love to what are the hard numbers? How do you measure your success? Yeah, so um, in um, our, um, so as I mentioned, our um, our community is one of the second, is the second fastest growing part of the state of Virginia. So our population is expected to explode um, over the next year. It's all over the next 10 years. It's already, you know, you know, much different than it was 10 years ago. And so if you can kind of picture a line graph where you have kind of the population growth spiking um, and you have um, our homeless numbers, however, have stayed stagnant, which are around 200, um, which may not seem like a big number, but for our area it is. Um, But the numbers have stayed about 200 and, um, and not done what they have done in other areas where the population growth number and the um, and the homeless number have, have aligned. And then if you think of chronic homelessness, um, which is what our focus is and people who have been on the street a year or more and have a disability, those numbers over the last 10 years have decreased by 56%. So I don't know how well I can paint that visual, but, but if you really look at it that way, you know, um, what I think that tells us is that 
is that if our population growth was stagnant or if our if our um, if other things were were the case, then then, you know, we would be pretty darn close to to um, to eliminating homelessness in a functional way, I think. Um, but um, we're 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 oftentimes in this community recognized as being a community that is very much on top of and has a well coordinated um, um, system for for caring for people who end up homeless. You talked about the need for relationships. There is a thing in the editorial that says that there is a plan to build places for people to live. So how do you address the expenses for living? You can put up people in a house, but they don't have the relationships that they need. And how do they stay there? Yeah. Yeah. So we have done, um, um, we've done housing in a number of different ways um, for the last, uh, since 2008. So for, you know, for the last 14 years. Um, and, um, and so sometimes that looks like a tenant has a lease and we provide financial assistance and case management until they can pay for it by themselves. Sometimes it means we lease the apartment and sublease to a person. And other times it means that we have own, we own some units. Um, and what, and we, and those units are all over the community. Um, and so what that means is, is that the support services have to go to them or the people have to connect with supports in the communities. And that works. It's a model that's used in a lot of different communities. Um, it's rooted in what's called housing first, which means you house people before they've worked out all their problems and, and anything has been fixed per se. And the, the philosophy has proven that when you get somebody into housing, they actually have a greater chance of working to keep that housing than they ever would if you would use the old model and that's go to shelter, figure it all out and then go into housing. And so we're very housing first in what we do, but we've reached this saturation point where the needs of the people that we're serving are really hard to care for in a scattered way. And so when, um, and so we have been um, working over the last couple of years to try to figure out, okay, how could we, create a community where some of the challenges of moving into an isolated apartment could be addressed and really build what people need. Uh, supportive housing, which means housing plus support, um, is not a new concept. Oftentimes in many communities, it looks like an apartment building, but we have become intrigued with um, what's increasingly a more innovative way of providing trauma-informed supportive housing, which acknowledges that people who oftentimes are on the street have oftentimes been over-institutionalized. They've been in jail a lot, hospitals. Sometimes they have a, a, some major social anxiety or trauma as a part of that. And shared walls is a hard thing. And so um, some of the models that we have looked at um, that use you could call them tiny homes or small houses. There's a difference, <laughs> um, but we are we're looking at, um, at at developing a neighborhood of small houses, about 450 square feet, um, where people will be able to live and sit on their front porches and connect with neighbors who have shared experiences and support and opportunities for, for being involved in the life of a community that makes sense to them is possible. 
I hate to say it, Megan Cotter of Micah Ministries in Fredericksburg, Virginia, but we are out of time. I mm -hmm. wanted to talk to you about how you do all of this with a wonderful husband and wonderful children, but uh, <laughs> you've been an, an inspiration just in your passion for the topic. So we're going to have to let the personal things go for this time. But I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud to know you, to have had you in a classroom. Emory and Henry is so proud of you. You are really making the world better. And I thank you so much for being with me today on this conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to this conversation on WEHC. The program airs Wednesday at six, Sundays at two. You can stream at wehcfm.com. You can also go to wehcfm.com, search the archives and find this show from previous episodes. Thanks for tuning in and join us next time.